Pop Culture Affidavit presents... It came from syndication! Episode 7, Baywatch. Make it so. We are best girlfriends. Hello and welcome back to Syndication. This is the seventh episode of It Came From Syndication, a pop culture affidavit miniseries that is brought to you by Two True Freaks. I'm Tom Panneries and I'm going to spend my time here offering a retrospective of what you could find on syndicated television in the 1980s and early 1990s. Each episode will focus on a different television genre and I will try to give as thorough of a look as possible as to what was on TV back then. This is the seventh and final episode of this miniseries. And for this one, I'm actually not focusing on a genre, but a single television show, and that show is Baywatch. Now, there are a couple of reasons for this. First, I think if you have paid attention to me long enough, it probably makes a lot of sense that I have dedicated an entire episode of a podcast to Baywatch. In fact, in the latest episode of the main show, I'm going to be talking about shows that I taped back in the day, one of which was Baywatch. Second, while I think that Star Trek The Next Generation is probably the most revered and probably one of the most successful syndicated shows, after all, it did get nominated for Best Drama at the Emmy Awards in its final season, Baywatch has a place in history because at its height, it was a global phenomenon. Unlike Star Trek The Next Generation, however, Baywatch was not originally produced for syndication. It was a carryover show, one that had one season on a network before it went to syndication where it exploded in popularity. The show was created by Michael Burke, Douglas Schwartz, and Gregory J. Bonin, and premiered on April 23, 1989 with an extended pilot episode, which I think was run as a TV movie, called Baywatch, Panic at Malibu Pier. From there, it debuted in NBC's primetime lineup on September 22nd, 1989 at 8 p.m. This is a Friday night and is one of a number of shows in the 1980s and 1990s that was given what came to be known as the Friday Night Death Slot. It was up against what was then a actual ratings champ in ABC's TGIF lineup of Full House and Family Matters, which was also followed by Perfect Strangers and uh, the final season of Just the Ten of Us before that 10 o'clock airing of 2020. Not surprisingly, Baywatch finished 73rd out of 103 shows and it was canceled. Compounding its issues, its production company, GTG, went out of business right around the time of its cancellation. But the creators and its star, David Hasselhoff, thought the show was worth keeping alive, and so they shopped it around to a different production company, uh, and then they went the syndication route. 
By about 1992 to 1993, it was literally the biggest show in the world, and it lasted until 1999 in its original form before being retooled as Baywatch Hawaii from 1999 until finally going off the air in 2001. The show had a spin-off, Baywatch Nights, which was not as successful, but is noteworthy for providing an early role for actress Angie Harmon, who would go on to be a Law & Order cast member. It also had three direct-to-video movies, Forbidden Paradise, which sounds like a Skinamax movie, if I'm being completely honest, White Thunder at Glacier Bay, and Hawaiian Wedding. There was also a fair amount of music used in the show, which resulted in the sound and a soundtrack being released on CD. And before you ask, I do not own a copy of the soundtrack. I do remember seeing it in Record World at the Sunvet Mall at one point, although the Record World might have been the wall, which is totally relevant, but now I'm trying to remember what went from Record World to the wall to FYE. I don't even, might not even be there anymore. Anyway, anyway, anyway. Um, so I remember seeing it. I actually just consider buying it for kicks because I love novelty shit like that but considering like CDs back then especially at a, at a mall record store were like upwards of $20 and you know you you sometimes you sometimes like you know held on to that 20 to make sure you got the perfect CD or the, the you, you got your money's worth for your purchase had it been in like a $5 bargain bin I might have actually took the chance on it but alas it's a CD that I think you could probably find on Amazon or eBay for a few dollars. Um, it's definitely been out of print for years. It has 12 tracks. Uh, that includes the full version of the theme song, songs sung by supporting cast members Gregory Allen Williams, a Alexandra Paul, and Jeremy Jackson, who was going by, I kid you not, Jeremy J.Z. Jackson. It's the early 90s. Just... He wasn't ripping anybody off back then. And, of course, four by uh, David Hasselhoff himself, who did have a pretty successful international singing career at this point. Helmut Kohl was elected to his fourth term as Germany's chancellor this week. Experts say Mr. Kohl's success was guaranteed after he won the backing of singing sensation David Hasselhoff. <laughs> Which, once again, proves my old theory. Germans love David Hasselhoff. The success of the show and the music actually led to a pay-per-view concert, believe it or not. Uh, this was called David Hasselhoff and His Baywatch Friends. It was filmed at the Trump Castle Casino in Atlantic City. The Hoff headlined. Um, he duetted with Marla Maples. And there were also performances by some of his co-stars. But unfortunately for the Hoff and the rest of his Baywatch friends, this aired on June 17, 1994 which uh, a lot of people in our generation know as the day of the O.J. Simpson Bronco chase. So nobody saw anything else that night, and it was, I think, historically like one of the lowest-rated pay-per-view specials of the time. But I'm burying the lead here because, well, Baywatch's success really was not due to its commitment to promoting... David Hasselhoff's singing career, nor was it writing or acting. Baywatch was popular, so popular, uh, both in the United States and internationally because of its commitment to TNA. 
Baywatch took the jiggle vision of the 1970s and made it even less subtle by having the women in high-cut bathing suits all the time and the men shirtless for most of the episodes. Plus, it took the idea of a rock-pop-led montage and made that an integral part of every episode, throwing in plenty more TNA in for these slickly edited segments. Plus, the show found a formula for success in casting over its 10 years. Hasselhoff was consistently the star, and I should note that once the show went into syndication, he also was an executive producer. But the other cast members were a rotating cast of attractive men and women. By the time Baywatch Hawaii finally went off the air in 2001, the show had brought us Erica Leniak, Pamela Anderson, Yasmin Bleeth, Nicole Eggert, Gina Lee Nolan, Kelly Packard, Donna DeErico, Tracy Bingham, Brooke Burns, Billy Warlock, David Charvet, David Chokichi, Jason Simmons, and Jason Momoa. Yes, Aquaman was on Baywatch. Now, not all of these are household names. Some actually really didn't do much beyond Baywatch. They were just known for being in Baywatch and probably Playboy as well. Um, but a few of them had careers post-Baywatch, but just like Law & Order went through a number of detectives and lawyers and ER went through a number of doctors and nurses, Baywatch went through hot lifeguards. And it worked. The show was on the air from uh, in syndication for about a decade, for the most of the decade of, of the 90s, say for like, you know, that one year, about 1990. Pamela Anderson, later Pamela Lee, and then she changed her name back to Pamela Anderson, but at the at one point, of course, she was uh, married to Motley Crue drummer Tommy Lee, and she was one of the participants in probably one of the most infamous sex tapes pre-Kardashian of the of the late 90s and early 2000s. Uh, Pam Anderson was basically the biggest breakout uh, star of Baywatch. Uh, she didn't really have as much success after leaving the show. The movie Barbed Wire was a box office bomb. Uh, but the syndicated action series VIP... It was moderately successful. But Anderson, um, next to only the Hoff, was probably the one name associated with the show. And at the height of her celebrity, her Baywatch role and Playboy appearances made her one of the biggest sex symbols of the early 1990s. It's something that the very first Baywatch blonde, Erica Aleniak, also tried to achieve, but I think she wound up being forgotten more or less because Anderson was essentially her replacement after she left the show. While Aleniak has acted steadily since Baywatch, I would say her most notable roles were early on um, as Tony Johnson in the movie Chasers, although I honestly don't think I've ever seen that movie. I just remember the movie's poster. And as Ellie Mae Clampett in the Beverly Hillbillies movie, uh, she also played Jordan Tate in Under Siege. Anybody who's seen Under Siege knows Erica Aleniak was in that movie because we all remember the scene where she pops naked out of a cake. I, I do want to mention one other appearance on her IMDb profile because she's an E.T. She was obviously much younger than she was when she played Shawnee on the first season or two of Baywatch, but she is the girl that Elliot kisses in the classroom scene where they release the frogs and he's having that kind of psychic rapport with E.T., uh, so, if you're familiar with E.T., Erica Aleniak is, is in that. Anyway, other men and women of the show would also become sex symbols. Uh, like I said, none on the letter level of Anderson or, or even Aleniak. Uh, the show's TNA was also the subject of late-night talk show jokes 
And it was a recurring gag on Friends with Joey and Chandler. So, uh, what you watching? Baywatch. What's it about? <laughs> Lifeguards? Well, that sounds kind of stupid. Who's she? Nicole Eggert. <laughs> you like her. <laughs> Wow, look at them run. They do that a lot. Hey, you want a beer? Yeah, I'll go get one. No, no, don't get up. I got a cooler right here. <laughs> so the show made its way into our cultural lexicon in the 1990s. You didn't even have to watch Baywatch to know Baywatch. In fact, I remember seeing a segment about this on an NBC show. Uh, I think it was called like NBC News Now. It was around the time in like the early 90s where they were trying out like different ideas for news shows before they decided that let's just call everything Dateline. Um, but anyway, the, the show, I remember the segment. I could have sworn I taped it, but in all the stacks of videotapes that are sitting right in front of me, this was not on there. And... Um, so anyway, they, they were talking about how uh, they talked about how like NBC like let the money maker go because NBC was the ch- network that canceled it. Uh, they talked about how it cashed in on the superficiality and how so many comedians would make joke about it, and really how David Hasselhoff was pretty much laughing all the way to the bank. Which to bring this segment to a close is why I chose to spotlight the show and to bring it back around to stuff why I will put it up there with Star Trek The Next Generation as one of the great hour-long syndicated television shows. Now, does it still hold up? I mean, (laughs) it's kind of a stupid question to ask. Does an episode of Baywatch still hold up? Let's rephrase. Can you make your way through an old episode of Baywatch 25 years, nearly 30 years after its first release? I decided to watch five episodes from season three, and I will talk about those right after this. Beginning in 2018, the Who's Who podcast enters the 1990s with our coverage of the Loose Leaf editions. Featuring Superman by Jerry Ordway. The Joker by Brian Bolland. Wonder Woman by George Perez. Sandman by Mike Dringenberg. Batman by Norm Brayfogle. The JLI by Adam Hughes. Eclipso by Bart Sears. The Legion of Superheroes by Keith Giffen. Dark Stars by Travis Charest. Lobo by Simon Bisley. Kent Shakespeare by Chris Sprouse? Who is that? Doomsday by Tom Grummet. Wait, are we covering these by issue or in alphabetical order? The Justice Society of America by Mike Parabek. The Forever People again? You are fucking kidding me. Doom Patrol by Richard Case. <sighs> I'm so confused. And many more. The Who's Who podcast, going boldly into the 90s. A proud member of the Fire and Water Podcast Network, I guess.
So back in 2006 and 2007, I think, Baywatch was released on DVD in the U.S. by First Look Studios, and the first three seasons were the only ones that were made available. Although the entire series was released on DVD internationally at various points, and in in a complete package, like exactly how they were aired on television. But this was the only U.S. release it had, aside from some of the... uh, reunion movies or the TV movies that were released kind of on their own. The DVD uh, that I'm talking about has been out of print for years, uh, but since I'm one of Netflix's remaining DVD subscribers, I was able to rent the first disc, uh, first couple of discs really, of what is listed as season two on the DVD, but is actually season three of the show. So according to this DVD release, the two seasons with Billy Warlock and Erica Eleniak, uh, which also include the NBC season that co-starred um, Parker Stevenson in addition to David Hasselhoff, that's all like one big season in their mind. And season two begins with Tequila Bay, which is really season three, episode three. So if you're looking at the DVDs and you're looking at like the Wikipedia page, there's a lot of discrepancy and you just kind of have to suss it out. Plus... Um, I don't think there was a lot of money for the release because the original music from the show was taken out and replaced with just kind of generic music, which, by the way, includes the theme song. And they couldn't get the rights to their own theme song. So, uh, or at least the company didn't make an effort to get the rights to the theme song, I'm Always Here. Uh, the theme song, it was, by the way, was sung by Jimmy Jameson, who was the second lead singer of the group Survivor. Um, he sang their hit, The Search Is Over, back in the mid to late 80s. And um, what they did on the DVD, they, they slapped another song onto it. And, and I know these things should not get me annoyed, but Jameson's theme song, I'm Always Here, is so much a part of Baywatch in my mind. And I think to a lot of people, there's like, you know, that that drum beat. You heard it as we came in, that drum beat that comes in and everything. It's, it's so much like what you expect to hear from an opening to a Baywatch episode that uh, to have it not be in there was like really, really off-putting. So I actually wound up fast-forwarding through all the credits of every episode that I watched, which a bit of a disappointment. But I, of course, have a saved YouTube clip and a saved audio clip so I can listen to the Baywatch theme anytime I want. Yeah. Anyway. I watched five episodes of the DVD set. Uh, These were the first that really introduced us to the cast that would become familiar with over the course of the two years or so that I regularly watched the show. I mentioned the Hoff. He played Mitch Buchanan. Pamela Anderson, the other big star of the show, she played C.J. Parker. But there was also Nicole Eggert as Summer Quinn, David Charvet as Matt Brody, Alexandra Paul as Lieutenant Stephanie Holden, and Gar- Gregory Allen Williams as Beach Cop Garner Ellerby. Kelly Slater, who I was and I believe still is a pro surfer, was cast as Jimmy Slade. Um, although he more or less is gone by the middle of the season and would come back later on because they would hook up Matt and Summer eventually. Um, but she he was supposed to be Summer's kind of love interest. Yasmin Bleeth, uh, who at this time was not on the show. She, I think she was still on a soap opera. 
she would later come in and join the cast as Stephanie's sister, and I believe her name was Caroline, if I'm not mistaken. And rounding out the cast was Jeremy Jackson as Mitch's son, Hobie Buchanan. And Jeremy Jackson, by the way, has the second most appearances in the show's run, uh, second only to the star of the show, David Hasselhoff. I started with Tequila Bay uh, that starts off this DVD set. This is mostly about Matt and Jimmy being the uh, good guy surfer and the lifeguard combating local bad guy surfers who are claiming the beach is Tequila Bay as their own. Jimmy, who they, they all actually, I'm, I'm not even going to refer to him as Jimmy, I'll refer to him as Slade, because that's how they refer to him in the uh, in the context of the show. Or Jimmy Slade, um, you know. But so Slade teaches, is also like supposed to set up as the guy that Summer likes, and he's teaching her how to surf, and it's the subplot that starts for the first few episodes of the season that Summer just moved to Malibu from like, out of state, I think Texas, and Susan Anton plays her mother, who's like waiting tables, but she's also trying to get a singing career going. I think at some point um, she dates Mitch. So Summer being kind of the fish out of water in a sense, ha ha ha. But she's there with Slade, and she's attracted to Slade, and uh, he's gonna kind of string her along. And it's this whole thing that we see at play over at least the the first three or four episodes that I'm gonna look at. In the main plot of the story, there is some action with these good surfers fighting the dickhead servers. Uh, they have surfboard combat. You know, they, they, they hit each other with surfboards. At one point, the bad guy surfers, like, put barbed wire in the water so that when Slade or Matt try to surf, they're going to get caught up and maybe even killed. Uh, you know, by the end of the episode, the dickhead surfers are caught, of course. Um, the Hoff plot... And I'm going to call any subplot that involves David Hasselhoff the Hoff plot. So uh, sometimes the Hoff plot's the main plot. In this case, the Hoff plot is a subplot. It's about this whole thing with uh, Stephanie returning to Baywatch because Stephanie um, was never a character prior to this. She is just another lifeguard who was an old flame of Mitch's. And so there's just a lot of flashbacks to each other's their romance together but right now there's a lot of tension between the two of them and the episode or at least the Hoff plot ends with Mitch endorsing Stephanie by writing her some sort of letter of recommendation I actually only watched about half the episode because the DVD kept skipping so I had to find the places where it wasn't going to skip uh, but I think that's fine. It's really not much of an episode. Uh, Eggert is a good actress. This is something that I kept writing over and over in the notes that I was taking, that she um, does a good job of what she is given. And um, in some cases, especially as you would go on the series, Nicole Eggert is given some ridiculous storylines or just dialogue that's just not really well written. She has the ability to at least make it look Believable, you know. So she has that skill to do something with, you know. Like you almost wish they had given her better material. Kelly Slater, on the other hand, probably a good thing that he was written out as the season went on. He is not a good actor. Um, great surfer, not a good actor. The Hoff plot is actually the best part of the episode. Um, David Hasselhoff and Alexandra Paul, who is a good actress in her own right, they have a genuine chemistry, and uh, they're back and forth this episode and over the episodes that I did watch um, was charming at times. 
Alexander Paul, by the way, is also on the tall side. Uh, this helps, believe it or not, because something I didn't realize about David Hasselhoff until I watched these episodes is that he is really tall. And um, I looked it up on IMDb, and according to IMDb, he's 6'4". And you can tell in a number of scenes, in a number of episodes, especially the scenes where he's, like, in, not in, like, lifeguard mode. He's um, in, like, office lifeguard mode, so he's just wearing, like, a polo and... and um, shorts or whatever, and they're indoors and he's standing next to somebody like Pam Anderson or or, or Nicole Leggert or um, a couple of the other people, he towers over everybody. So Alexandra Paul's tall, she's thin, and it, it works. Um, that, that works to her advantage, although I don't think that's the only reason that they cast her. Because um, she's, like I said, she is a good actress. The next episode that I watched uh, was Rookie of the Year. This was pretty much the first episode I ever remember seeing. Um, I don't think I saw the whole thing all at once, but I, from what I remember is I was uh, flipping around, maybe waiting for Highlander to come on or something, and I came across one of the montages, one of the training montages of... Um, Summer and Matt running with the rest of the rookies in the rookie course, right? And um, the whole memorable part of the plot and, and the memorable part of the episode is that Matt and Summer are finishing rookie school. Uh, in Matt's case, he is part of the Hoff plot. Uh, Matt is arrogant. He's vying for rookie of the year against an equally arrogant rookie guy. Um, Matt's also dealing with the fact that his father's a total jerk to him. His father, by the way, is played by Dirk Benedict, who in a clever bit um, at one point like is wearing like a, a tan jacket and chomping on a cigar. So he's and doing like a really good George Pippard imitation. So there you go. Anyway, in this plot, then the Hoff plot part of it is that the Hoff um, or Mitch sees himself as like the type of guy he wants to take Matt under his wing. Matt's like really, really, really arrogant about stuff. The Hoff's wearing really tight jeans, and he's all like, come on, man, I can help you. And um, eventually, you know, that becomes, like, really, really important um, because Dirk Benedict really doesn't have that many other uh, appearances on the show. I think the whole purpose of it was just basically to establish that his character was this kind of rich kid who and it explained his, like, total arrogance about stuff. Uh, Summer's storyline is that she's the underdog, um, which is her running through the episode, like I said, um, that's where I came in, and I think I stuck to watching the show at least for the rest of that episode, the 30 or 40 minutes that were left, because I recognized Nicole Eggert from all the years of Charles in Charge I have been watching. Summer's like the youngest, she's the smallest rookie, she's perceived as the weak, weakest, one of the biggest obstacles she has to overcome over the course of the episode, and that she manages to come overcome in that final montage, the, the race montage, is that she has to jump off the pier, and Matt does it with her, and that's supposed to be like, you know, yeah, she can make it to rookie school, and she ends up making it because she's a regular cast member. It's actually one of the better ones, at least montage-wise. Uh, because it's a lot of the rookie school training stuff, so you have this running and swimming and competition stuff. It kind of looks like when NBC would cover the Ironman triathlon, you know? So, anyway, the substituted music takes away from it a little bit, uh, but at least it's shot pretty well. 
And I'd say this is the best one I watched, but it's not. Uh, even if it's one of the most memorable because of those training montages. What takes away are the subplots. Uh, CJ and Stephanie have to live together f- because reasons. And it's this like odd couple where CJ's the hippie slob and Stephanie's the uptight one. Um, there's another plot involving a character named Guido, who's this recurring comic relief character who's played by Buzz Belmondo, who was also on Out of This World and for some reason showed up as like syndicated show comic relief from time to time. And I think he made like a career out of that at one point or another. It, it it's it's not funny. It's like involves him like harassing women and then harassing the wrong woman, but it's played for laughs. It's it's not not good anyway uh the next episode the one that um the one that i think is the is the best episode this is called peer pressure but it's spelled p-i-e-r pressure yes you see what they did there because it does have a storyline about fitting in as a teenager or in the case of hobie buchanan a tween um Look, it's not masterpiece television by any means, but it's a solid episode. Um, And it's the type of solid episode that makes you actually want to pay attention for the 45 minutes that you're watching it as opposed to kind of like zoning out through the dialogue and waiting for the boobs and the montages. You know, because it's Baywatch. Uh, The Hoff plot involves Hobie. Hobie's a little younger than I was at the time. Uh, basically, Hobie almost kills himself trying to surf around and beneath the pillars of the pier because he's trying to impress a girl, and he had just seen Slade do it. And Slade was all, like, awesome, and the girl was all like, Ew, Slade! He was like, I'm gonna do that. But then he... But, like, you know, she kind of feels bad for him that he almost got killed doing it and so it kind of gets him a little bit of favor in her eyes and then she discovers where like she hangs out and it's this liquor store but the liquor store has candy and it has a street fighter 2 game and so he's down there playing street fighter 2 with that girl there and she and and some older kids and the older kids they play the way a lot of us used to play at arcades where like you put your quarters up for the next play and the person who um who was winning at the point was there until you know they got defeated and hobie beats this older kid and there's this whole thing between this older kid uh, who's kind of a dick and uh, jason marsden Eddie Munster from the Munsters today. And uh, they get the older dickhead kid and Jason Marsden get into a fight. And like there's a beer that's thrown and there's like, you know, property damage or something to the point where Hobie witnesses it. But because Mitch had known that he had gone to that liquor store and had forbidden him from going to the liquor store, Hobie keeps his mouth shut about the fight. And this, you know, causes all sorts of, of tension. Uh, the the Hoff-Hobie plot climaxes when this dickhead kid lures Jason Marsden into this abandoned area, like, near or underneath the pier. Um, he, like, literally, like, kidnaps him basically he like traps him like under this old like box spring that i guess maybe a homeless person had thrown a dirty mattress on at some point or another but 
And I like I think it's like he was really gonna hurt the guy or maybe even kill him. Like you got the impression that this kid was just like this sociopathic bully type of person and or or that he didn't intend to kill him, but like he's the one of the gang that's gonna take it a little too far and somebody is gonna end up seriously injured. At any rate, um dickhead kid gets caught, Hobie helps out um, you know, Jason Marsden. I don't know if Hobie gets the girl, so to speak, but, um, you know, he and Mitch kind of make up. Overall, though, I will say, um, it's not a bad, like, storyline. It's it's one of those, you know, kids in over their head or this situation gets out of hand way more than you'd thought it would be um, type of story. It's their attempt to put a kid actor, a tween actor, into a story that, like, logically you could see him getting involved in. Like, the Street Fighter... Street Fighter 2 was the biggest... One of the biggest video games of the time. And people would... If they saw it at arcades, like, there would be a crowd around that. Mortal Kombat was another one. And you'd play each other. Like, you'd put your quarters up and I want to beat you. And then if you took it over, you ran the game until, you know, whenever. So it was done really realistically. And um, liquor stores... I don't know, out in... Maybe out in California, I've I've heard stories of where video games were in liquor stores. I don't know where I where I lived. I don't think that was possible. But um, you know, this is a liquor store on the beach, so Hobie probably being twelve or thirteen and being forbidden to be in a liquor store, which again, total makes total sense. Like my parents would have been like, "What the hell were you doing at a liquor store?" You know, so. Um, and the Hoff Hobie stuff, you know, uh, there's this whole thing with Mitch. He's divorced. I think this was like way from way back in the, the very beginning of the show. Mitch is uh, Mitch. Mitch had recently been divorced, and in later um, later episodes, and then in the next season, his wife is played by actress uh, Wendy Malick, who would go on to be on a number of shows and, and movies and stuff, including uh, the show Just Shoot Me. But. Um, uh, and she like remarries or is going to remarry in one episode. Sam Jones, you know, Captain, uh, not Captain Marvel, uh, Flash Gordon from the Flash Gordon. Yeah. So anyway, um, so there's this whole thing, this whole basically kind of running thread through the Mitch stuff is that he's raising Hobie on his own. And he's got so he's got a teenage kid, a teenage boy who's trying to bring up like his respectable teenage, respectable man on his own. And yeah, there's a lot of overacting between the two when when he's, um, you know, when he's disciplining Hobie and all this stuff. But it's, I give them points for trying because it's at least with the Hoff, he's trying to act both as a dad and a guy who is also this kid's friend, which is a dangerous thing um, from the perspective of many who would who would write about parenting. But um, but it's a very very real thing. So. And Hobie, again, falling with these rough, dickish kids because this girl, at the age of 12, 13, what Hobie's trying to be, it's it's kind of realistic enough, and it's kind of fun to watch. You, you do want to see how this goes. That's not even the main plot. The main plot is a teen drama, um, which is kind of weird for this show, but it, it works really well. So Summer is starting school at Malibu Beach High. Um 
And I think she'll actually start school in the next episode. So the summer's coming to a close. She is now a full-time lifeguard. She really likes Slade. Uh, but she ends up running afoul of the queen bee of the mean girls at Malibu Beach High, who is played, uh, She's her name is Courtney Brenner, and she is played by none other than Elizabeth Berkeley. That's right, Jesse Spano was in uh, two episodes. This is the next one of Baywatch. And I, I looked it up because I was like really curious um, as to like when this was filmed or was aired in the timing of Saved by the Bell because Saved by the Bell was still on the air in its original version at this point. And um, they were running the, the Tory episodes in addition to the Jesse Kelly episodes at this time. So I think this was after she had finished her commitment to Save by the Bell, even though the show was still running on NBC on Saturday mornings. Um, this was a couple of years, by the way, before she would film Showgirls. So she didn't completely get rid of her good girl image here, but she was obviously trying. She played like a really, really mean character, which is something that Jesse Spano was not. So anyway, uh, the main plot of this episode ends, you know, it's all this jealousy and, and Jesse Spano being a bitch and all this stuff, but it ends with, um, Jesse getting Jesse Spano getting uh, really really you know drinking on the beach and going swimming even though Summer told her not to and then well she's like you stupid fuck you were nothing before you met me you were playing Barbies with Betty Finn you were a bluebird you were a brownie you were a Girl Scout cookie but because she went drinking and then went swimming. Uh, she nearly drowns, and Summer saves her life. And when Bur Jesse Spano comes to, she's a total bitch about it. Of course she is. And it spills over to the following episode, which is called Showdown at Malibu Beach High. And uh, this is an episode that features, oh man, one of those really ham-handed, like, pretty racist storylines where... Someone is encroaching on a Native American secret land, and a high school buddy of Matt and Summer, who's played by a guy who's like clearly pushing 30, by the way, who is Native American, has to protest and show everyone that this is real ritual, spiritual, secret ground, and I have a ritual to show you this, and you'll see eagles soaring and deer going, even though there's no eagles or deer there, and my name is Bear. No, his guy's, this guy's name is Bear. It's, like, so, like, oh, my God. It's so, like, just bad. There's <laughs> just no other way to describe it. It's like this off-brand Lou Diamond Phillips guy, and at one point he's like tying himself to the school in protest because the school was gonna sell off this land to a developer. And uh, the Berkeley stuff is a little bit better. Um, she's more or less in there to steal Slade away from Summer because she's like rich and she can help him get surfing sponsorships and we see her riding a horse on a beach um and i think that she's not on any other episode after this and i think it was probably like an only a two episode commitment slade kind of fades away as the season goes like i said he pops up later on in a in a i think it was even in the next season where matt and summer fall in love with one another but then like slade's kind of a little bit of competition for him or something but um this is like the show, these few episodes, the show's kind of 
even though it had been on for like two seasons, it had now had kind of a slightly younger cast, so it was trying to find its feet as to what was it going to do. And um, I mean, there's even a point where like they have Pam Anderson like um, CJ as like the she she shows up on the campus of Malibu Beach High, and I'm like, there's no way that character is supposed to be a high school student. And uh, no, she was the volleyball coach or something like that. And everybody in Malibu High, Beach High, by the way, is either um, post grad um, or or plucked from the pages of your latest Playboy spread, and they're all wearing clothing, guys and girls, that would like be a complete dress code violation, like like to anybody like conservative liberal whatever all standards like it's like a complete fashion disaster combined with a dress code violation on this episode of Baywatch and that's like the only watchable part of it uh, because it really is out of the five that I watched it's probably the worst of the batch the major rescue in the episode is that like Matt throws a back to school party and one of the guys who was another lifeguard, actually, and he was like a total prick to Matt in the Rookie of the Year episode. He's like kind of the the Johnny to his Daniel in that episode. Well, like, he's at the party, and they're at the pool, and, and he and this girl that he's trying to hook up with are are um, doing inhalants. They're, they're sucking on computer cleaner cans, which... It's the early '90s. Remember, this was like this was a thing that people did. And I think people still do, but like you know, the dangers of inhalants became like a big thing when I was in high school. Um, and uh, I actually watched somebody do it when we were in um, high school. Somebody not not in school, but like a friend of a friend used to suck on that stuff and try to get high or and get high, and it was. Um, Really, really weird to watch. I never did it because I, well, I'm not stupid. I also was like a goody-goody type of kid anyway, but it was just not my thing. And it wasn't my friend's thing, but this friend of a friend like would suck on it and then like laugh hysterically. And like, it, he, I don't think he ever, like it never turned into an after-school special where he got brain damage or anything like that. But I mean, he was already kind of a, weird as it is but it's when you look at it you think about it as a really scary proposition or, or a scary idea that you're kind of sucking these chemicals in anyway reality aside what happens is that they're matt sees them doing it he tells them not to do it they're like yeah, whatever buddy screw you they do it anyway and then they both almost drown so we have the rescue for the for the day um but what you have is in those couple of episodes, the show trying to figure out what it wants to do with those characters before it finally decides that its formula lies in the stuff that had made it really successful to begin with and would eventually make it successful, which was lifeguards doing things that no lifeguard should be involved in doing. Like, stopping diamond smugglers and catching serial killers and you finally see them find their footing in the last episode of the show that i watched which was called point doom um this has a hoff plot where mitch and stephanie are competing in a race and uh, she decides to mess with him by like actually not like 
she's like, you know what? I don't know if you think I'm going to compete in this race. I'm just going to um, pretend that I am. And, and she gets Garner to like tell Mitch that like her time keeps improving because she's trying to get back at him for all the years of where he played like stupid practical jokes on her when they were, you know, when they were both coming up as lifeguards. So it's like, ha, 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 look at this. I'm playing a joke on Mitch. It really only works because Paul and Hoff have some good chemistry. Anyway, the main plot, it's Matt meeting this biker girl named Jessie. Uh, Jessie is played by Jennifer Campbell, who was on the show later as a totally different character. She would reappear as Jessie sometime later on in like the third or fourth season. And then later on, like several years down the road, she was recast she was cast as somebody completely different and was a was a regular character but in between that she has a two episode stint on Seinfeld she plays and I can't remember the character's name but she plays this model that uh Jerry meets on a plane in this episode where Jerry's in first class and Elaine's in coach and then he starts dating her and they break up after uh, she catches Jerry picking his nose at a red light. So that, that's that's the woman who plays Jesse in this episode. And basically, like, there's this whole thing about them racing the forbidden road about point around Point Doom because it's basically Dead Man's Curve, you know. And uh, she wants to race for pink slips against these, like, you know, jerkle biker guys and she does but what happens is that like jerko biker guy sees that she's gonna win and he throws a chain into her bike and she goes flying off the cliff into the water and matt saves her and thankfully she only breaks her leg and then um, matt ends up challenging jerk biker guy to a another race or whatever and at some point or another Matt's okay, like the police show up or something, and but Jerk Biker Guy goes off and he goes skidding off of the Point Doom and the, the bike goes over a cliff, but he he almost dies, but he's hanging off the cliff and if he, nobody rescues him, he is going to fall off and they save him by having Matt and Mitch rappel to the rescue and then of course Matt gets the girl. It's terribly acted. It's got a training montage for Mitch and Stephanie's race where Hoff's doing crunches to a song that sounds like off-brand CNC Music Factory, and I wanted to know what was in there to begin with. So I looked up the IMDb soundtrack listing, and according to IMDb, it was I'm Too Sexy by Right Said Fred. And watching that montage, I can see that it probably was I'm Too Sexy by Right Said Fred, which is not something I don't think anybody has ever said about David Hasselhoff. Um, maybe people have, you know, who knows? Everybody's got their tastes. Uh, there's also some sort of like the Matt and Jesse date montage before Jesse gets thrown off the cliff. Um, they play pool and she's wearing like a bikini underneath like a dress that zips up in the front because this was the early 90s and at one point she zips it like down enough so that like when she's playing pool her like he can look down her shirt and everything because maybe she's trying to distract him or maybe she just wants him to see her boobs or whatever um i'm pretty sure when i was about 15 i rewound that scene a few times anyway um despite that out of all the five episodes that i watched this was the most pure baywatch and um, 
I can see how a year or so later this would be a huge show because I started looking through some of the synopses for episodes on the Wikipedia pages and the plots got much more streamlined. They kept it to the beach. Sometimes they would go other places, but it was pirates and smugglers and all sorts of hardy boys crap that these lifeguards really should have just turned over to the police, but they never do. And speaking of which, uh, that brings me to my last mention about this uh, about this show, is that Baywatch recently got the feature film treatment in the way that 21 Jump Street and Chips did, the played-for-laughs sort of story with cameos by original cast members. Baywatch, the movie which came out in 2017, stars Dwayne Johnson as Mitch Buchanan, and Zac Efron as Matt Brody. So they go with the characters that I was just talking about in this segment. In fact, they have a CJ, a Stephanie, and a Summer as the other female characters. They have this other like kind of like pudgy guy named Ronnie, too, like the out-of-shape guy who's kind of the comic relief and kind of the nerdy type of guy. I guess he's supposed to be like, you know, the, the contrast of him against all these like sexy bodies, that type of thing. Anyway... I didn't think it was going to be very good because it was probably going to like wink at the camera too much, if you know what I mean. But the movie was actually pretty fun. Um, one of the charms of the television show was that I'm, while I'm pretty sure everyone doing it knew how ridiculous it was, they all played it pretty straight. Uh, the movie knows that, and they have fun with it. Um, everybody but the lifeguards knows how ridiculous all of this is. In fact, like there's this storyline of them trying to capture drug smugglers who's really this rich woman who lives on the beach and Rob Hewell plays the captain and and you know you've Garner Ellaby uh, in in the episode as well and not the same actor but they're all like you know this is not your job your job is save, is is protecting the beach and saving people and and the, and Dwayne Johnson's like all you know no um we're going to like you know do all the detective work and solve the case and all this and everybody's like you guys are lifeguards you're not police and it's this running gag that really works because the characters don't realize the ridiculousness of the situation, but everybody else does. Plus, Efron plays a gold medal winning swimmer who kind of got the yips in the relay uh, because he was out all night the night before partying and then literally threw up in the pool as he was racing. They call him they, the nickname he got from it was the Vomit Comet. So basically, he's Ryan Lochte, and it's a, for what it's worth, it is a kind of a fun movie. Um, and you know, like Johnson, the Dwayne Johnson's got a natural charm about him that he had when he was The Rock, you know, wrestling, and he brings that to just about every role I've seen him in. So even in a crappy movie, he is really, really good. Um, so. Uh, that that's a that's a compliment to him, and you know, I would check it out. It's free on Amazon Prime, and it's also on Hulu. So um, there are a lot of dick jokes, though. There's a lot of like literal dick jokes, um, where you actually see the the member of a dead person and and things like that. Um, and there are there are a number of like really really sexist jokes and things like that. So just kind of go in there knowing that's kind of crude humor. But, you know, it's got some good cameos by Hasselhoff and Anderson, and uh, it's, it's, it's worth it if you got a couple of hours to kill um, and nothing better to, to watch. Uh, but 
that'll be it for Baywatch. And uh, unfortunately for the original show, you really can't stream it anywhere. I don't recommend trying to find those DVDs because of the fact that they're so incomplete in terms of music. Some there are some episodes on YouTube, but they probably a lot of them have been ripped from those DVDs, so it's just not as you know. I mean, you could, you could watch it, but it's I don't know. You're, it's just missing something. And I hate to be all purity about Baywatch, but I don't know. There is something to watch these episodes with its original cheesy, cheesy music, especially that theme song. But still, when I watched it and and from what I remember about it and all the things here, it was just a fun hour of television to waste your time. And as a hormone-laden teenage boy in the early 90s, there were a lot of reasons for me to watch the show. So I'm going to take a break. And I'm going to come back with a big heaping bag of listener mail and comments. And then I'm going to close it out. Stick around. is Michael Bailey, and I am still kind of a bad geek. Not a fan of anime, never seen any of the Harry Potter films, much less read the books, I've ventured a little further into the worlds of Star Wars and Star Trek, and I've even managed to watch a little Doctor Who. I've also managed to not watch a single episode of The Walking Dead. So what do I like? Comic books. I have been reading and collecting comic books since 1987 and I've been a fan of superheroes for as long as I can remember. Some would consider this a hobby, but I prefer to look at it as what it truly is, a crippling addiction that I may never recover from. Back in 2007, I started a podcast called Views from the Long Box to deal with this borderline personality disorder. Every week or so, I pick a particular comic or issue or character or whatever to talk about them, and then, well, I I talk about them. Kind of what a podcast is. Sometimes I'm alone. Sometimes I'm joined by my semi-regular co-host, the Irredeemable Shag, or Thomas DJ, and the permanent semi-regular co-host, Andrew Leyland, and sometimes another friend from the podcasting and comic book world stops by to chat. The show is located at www.viewsfromthelongbox.com, where you can find old episodes and show notes and links to my other internet endeavors. You can also find the show on Facebook, and I'm on Twitter under the handle at Bailey's Podcasts. Views from the Long Box, a podcast about comic books or a desperate cry for help. You decide every Tuesday or so at www.viewsfromthelongbox.com.
quick feedback corrections and omissions section here for uh, all six prior episodes of the series. This is stuff that came in to me uh, up until about Friday, August 17th uh, in the afternoon. So if you still want to write into me at popcultureaffidavit at gmail.com or share some comments or something on the Facebook feed for the the show and and these episodes uh feel free i will just weave those into future episodes of the, of the main show pop culture affidavit the next episode of which should drop in september so i'm going to cover like i said feedback corrections and omissions uh that i got for everything and then i'm going to take us home and, and close out the mini series as it has been uh, for these seven weeks Episodes one and two, those were intros and movies and sitcoms, really didn't get a ton of feedback. I didn't really expect them to. They're out of all of the genres, um, they're probably the least, I don't want to say popular, but they're definitely the the ones that are on the kind of lower tier. And, and you notice that, I think, with the exception of this episode, which really I feel that I probably did Baywatch more for myself than anybody else. But when you look how we did it, infotainment, game shows, cartoons, and then the the drama, action, sci-fi stuff, I was kind of building up toward the... Better isn't really the word. I think it was like a more popular type of thing that, you know, I knew I would get more comments on cartoons and dramas, action, sci-fi than I would say sitcoms or watching movies and things like that. But I will... uh, I did have a couple of Facebook comments from Aaron Head Moss who loved both the first episode and the second episode, so thank you very much. Um... When it comes to infotainment, episode three, I really didn't get any um, feedback except for a few people who tweeted that um, or or messaged me that they absolutely love the episode. Um, Gene tweeted at me that, uh, not tweeted, uh, messaged me a couple of times that some of the things that Amanda said he was laughing his ass off. And uh, Amanda got a lot of compliments, which she she didn't really believe, but um, she she really got a lot of compliments, and a lot of people liked it. And, and I've gotten a lot of compliments out of the episodes that I've done with her, a few of which I've gone back and listened to here and there over the years. Um, the one I recently re-listened to, our episode about the 1996 HF Festival, so that would have been from like the summer to early fall of 2016. Um, and it was about the, the music from the summer of 1996. And if you're... If you have never heard that episode and you're you're from you kind of spent your formative years in the 90s and you remember a lot of the music from 1996 and and beyond, I recommend that you go find and check that episode out. Uh, it's a few hours, a couple hours long, but the two of us go through the program for a music festival in Washington D.C. that we found in uh, the in a box somewhere and go through like all the different bands that were there. And then we just kind of talk in general about the music came that came out that year, which was, we were about 18, 19 years old. So, and we had a blast. And, and like I said, I've listened to it more than once. So if, if you do like my wife, hearing my wife and I talk about stuff, that is really one that I recommend. Uh, there was another one about music and, and we, we have some on the list of things that we're going to do together. So I, I promised her that I would edit tighter next time. But I, I appreciate all the compliments we've gotten. I do want to point out that on that infotainment episode, which is, I think, one of my favorites to to put together, uh, getting the clips, it was crazy. Like, all of the different tangents and topics, it was, it was a long piece. 
but I really, really enjoyed that one because it took me back to a a part of syndication that is still well, really alive today, but that I I had forgotten was like so involved and there was so much of it and I just remember all these random shows and like how much entertainment tonight I watched and how much me along with her enjoyed like Ricky Lake and the Oprah Winfrey show and how like important these were to us as as teenagers and young adults and then even in our early adulthood as well and in all of that talking about the Springer and Geraldo and Sally Jesse and, and all of those different shows like in the course of the evening, the two of us totally forgot to mention the Montel Williams show, which was another big talk show, and 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 you know that's that's another Im- important talk show that uh, that gets over that got overlooked on the show, and and uh, unfortunately, I don't think I'm sure that a lot of people remember it well, but not as like on the level of an Oprah. So I did watch a few episodes of that, and. Uh, and Montel, Montel still pops up. I see him in, in things here and there, but I haven't seen him in, in much of anything else lately. But I just wanted to, again, an omission and correction for, for this particular episode was the complete omission of the Montel Williams show, which both of us watched from time to time. But I was editing the episode and I went, oh, wait, we forgot Montel. Now, when we get into episode four in Game Shows, that's where we do get some of the some email and some more feedback. And the first piece of email I have on the show is from Professor Allen, and he emails in to say, Tom, I've enjoyed the syndication series well enough up to this part, but now you are in my zone. This is game shows. I will keep my thoughts brief because when it comes to game shows, I have lots of thoughts. One, in junior high, 7th and 8th grades, my lunch period corresponded perfectly to the 11.30 to noon showing of Family Feud. Let's just say I'd rather spend that time with Richard Dawson than with any of those loser junior high kids. I hear you. Two, you mentioned Chuck Woolery's version of Scrabble. The show opened with a viewer-submitted clue, and I submitted dozens. Two made it onto the show, earning me a Scrabble t-shirt for the first and a letter of thanks for the second. That is cool. That is very, very cool. Three, when we first got cable, my wife and I watched tons of the Game Show Network. For a number of years, they ran reruns of old shows from the 50s as Sunday Night in Black and White. I'm going to put this on hold. That does sound familiar. I don't think we really watched it. I think our heyday, as Amanda and I mentioned, um... When we first got the Game Show Network, our like heyday of watching the Game Show Network constantly was the 70s and early 80s game shows. So Match Game, Pyramid, Feud, those sorts of things. So, uh, But he mentions, what's my line to tell the truth, beat the clock, and password in games like that? And he says, the Game Show Network also developed a few original ones, including Inquisition, which allowed four at-home players to play up on-air can same question device of... Touchtone phones. I never appeared on the air on Inquisition, but I did win one of those viewer phone in games. I'm pretty sure I won the princely sum of $50. Thanks for bringing back pleasant memories with this episode. Keep up the good work and have a great day. And that is Professor Allen, who was, uh, of course, runs the Relatively Geeky Network um, and does the Quarterman podcast and the Comics Reading Journal on his own. He, the Shortbox Showcase and Dorkness to Light with M. 
a quick another quick note on the game show. Um, I've never tried out for a game show myself. The closest thing I ever came to playing in a game show was a local competition that's not televised, but it's called Wordplay, uh, which is a trivia competition for charity. It benefits the literary literacy, sorry, literacy volunteers of Charlottesville and Albemarle. And uh, every year, it's a it's a designed by people who at one point did work on game shows. So there's all sorts of different categories, and you have it's pop culture, it's general knowledge, it's a really really fun thing. I have tried out for one reality show and auditioned for another. Back in the early 2000s, Amanda and I did a audition for the Tyler Florence cooking show Food 911 and um, did not get they were coming to the DC North Virginia area. We did not make it on I want to say, I don't know. I know I know. Our, we were living in an apartment, and it might have been small to shoot in that apartment. Um, we did get the chance to meet Tyler Florence at a book signing one time. Um, but the uh, other the other actual competition show that we had, we auditioned for once was The Amazing Race, but we never, we never heard back. Um, and that's aside from my constant, every once in a while, Jeopardy test uh, fails. So... So there you go. If you've ever been on a game show, and if you've ever auditioned for a game show or gotten a prize for a game show, kind of along the lines of what Professor Allen is talking about here, shoot me an email at popcultureaffidavit at gmail.com. Um, and, and if you want me to share your story, you know, shoot me an email. I would love to hear it, and I would love to share it in a, in a future episode, uh, in a feedback section, because that's really, really cool. Robert Ward chimed in with some Facebook comments. I kind of put them together. Uh, this also covers some corrections and omissions, which I'm really happy for. He says that this was a fun episode. Like the last time, I was it was just one of one of those. Oh yeah, I remember that right after another. And I'll put your your I'll put your um, email on hold here for a second and say I was really hoping I get that reaction out of a lot of people because a lot of the conversations were like that. Yeah, remember this, remember that, remember this, and especially when we got into drama and stuff, it's like some of these shows, like it, it, it's a special kind of like brand of geek that we are, that we remember all of this stuff and some of us who have watched it or watched it on a fairly regular basis. So it's that sort of deeper tier of, or that deeper knowledge of, of obscurity, especially from this era, because there's like, you know, there's, hey, I remember Saved by the Bell, and hey, I remember Out of This World. You know, there, there's a, you know, there, there's a certain like you're leveling up by saying that. So I, I love to hear, hey, I remember this and I remember that. Um. So anyway, back to, back to Robert's uh, comments. He says, I can't say I've ever been big on game shows. However, I used to watch reruns of classic shows, but. Can't say I ever watched anything with dedication except for Double Dare and Legends of the Hidden Temple when I was a kid. I, uh, I'm going to put your email on hold again, and I'm going to say I, I have heard of Legends of the Hidden Temple, but I never saw a single minute of it. Was that on Nickelodeon as well? Like I said, I got Double Dare through reruns that were in syndication on our Fox affiliate. Now, with regard to Jeopardy, he said that this was... Uh, perfect timing because um, right around the time I posted this, by the way, um, Alex Trebek says he's contemplating retirement. Now, Alex Trebek is in his 70s and he's been doing the show for 
almost 35 years, I think. I think Jeopardy premiered in 1984. This is 2018. This is 34 years. So that's a long run as a game show host. And I I am of the philosophy that if Alex Trebek left Jeopardy, they should replace him with somebody else who um, who might have that, that same sort of skill set. Um, Bob Barker left. Drew Carey does a really good job on The Price is Right. And... Um, the replacement hosts they've had for people like Gene Rayburn and Dick Clark have been really well. There, there's they uh, and 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 Trebek himself. Um, the same thing with like Pat Sajak and Vanna White. I mean, it. I think with Wheel it would be harder because there is so much of them in it. But at the same time, I think you could try to make it work if if they were to retire as well. I think Sajak's a little younger than Trebek, but. Anyway, Robert says, I'm already listening, but I have to say I hate Jeopardy. I'm not smart enough, and the show make, always makes me feel dumb. I much prefer games of more chance, though I have to say I have recently been seeing Joker's Wild while working out, and I can't figure out how digital displays like that are tolerated. <laughs> he also mentions, and this is where the corrections and omissions come in, that there were two other family feudos. So the show has been on more or less continuously since... Um, since really the 70s and between um louis anderson and steve harvey you have richard karn and john o'hurley or richard karn who played al on home improvement and john o'hurley who people who were friends of seinfeld will remember as jay peterman elaine's boss in the later seasons and if you watch the uh dog show on thanksgiving after the macy's day parade he's one of the commentators and he said like louis anderson their tenures were short but hey you remember louis who was on from 1999 to 2002 he says i can't say i would ever watch family feud religiously i would watch the odd rerun in the contemporary episodes in my early teens from which were louis to karn but karn and o'hurley stuck out in my mind since they seemed like odd replacements louis had a built-in recognition with life with louis um, I couldn't tell you anything about the cartoons I would watch back then, though. I remember a few titles, that being one. I remember Life with Louis too, by the way. Um, I, I don't. Th- I think I forgot to mention it, but once you bring it up, you brought it up. I I remembered it. I remembered Louis Anderson from way further back than that, because he used to be on Hollywood Squares and other game shows as a celebrity panelist, guest contestant, that sort of thing. And he has a wordless, blink-and-you'll-miss-it bit part in Ferris Bueller's Day Off. He is one of the people who is delivering the flowers, etc., and the nurse who likes to, you know, in that one scene where a genie answers the door. Uh, that, that's Louis Anderson. Like, he's to her left. So, But uh, Robert says that I'm glad you at least remembered him. To me, I was young enough to remember the cartoon and his humor. He seemed larger than life. I would have been upset if he was somehow forgotten. Aaron Head Moss loves the series. He says he was born in 69, so he's just slightly older than me, but he's so feeling it. And uh, we get into cartoons. And in cartoons, uh, we have a couple of things. Uh, Michael Wagner says that the episodes with Amanda have been the most enjoyable, and it's great to have a different point of view, and she has a great voice and personality. She, uh, she said, she's like, I said, that's interesting a lot. And uh, I, I didn't notice that, but, and I, I, 
I said it's I didn't even really realize it or notice it. And I have my quirks and and things like that. And where I I notice like where I trail off or before I edit, I, I even 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 in the episodes I say um and ah a lot, especially if I'm off script. But uh, I really enjoyed recording with her. And uh, Patrick Delmore did confirm that Amanda was right. Picture Pages was on Captain Kangaroo before they did port it over to Nickelodeon and would just rerun the segments as an interstitial here and there, either on pinwheel or between shows or something. I should also note that the Picture Pagers bit kind of got revived on the kids' television show Yo Gabba Gabba back in the 2000s. Um, Mark Mothersbaugh did the hosted the segment and it was i don't think they called it picture pages but it was very very similar in flavor i i brett watched a lot of yo gabba gabba back in back in the day i have a well a, a general comment from luke jacanetti but he did mention the show steam pipe alley um, which was the mario cantone kids show hosted on wwor9 and there was a it was either on the AV Club or IO9 or, or one of those sites did a piece on Steampipe Alley uh, maybe a year ago or two. I'll, if I if I can find it, I will throw it into the show notes for you guys. Um, that was a really it's a really like obscure show, but when Mario Cantone started popping up as doing stand-up comedy and on Sex and the City in the late 90s and early 2000s, I immediately recognized him from Steampipe Alley. But Luke did message me on Facebook to say that he was listening to it. He says he thinks the number, magic number for a show to be syndicated is at least or used to be 65. Uh, this is so a show can be stripped across five days for 13 weeks. So usually a show needs three seasons to be eligible. At least that is how I have understood it. That sounds familiar. Somebody told me 100, uh, another, and um, I've also heard somewhere in the 80s as well. 65 makes sense because there are a number of shows that in their third or fourth season do start getting picked up for syndication, especially sitcoms. Um, but, you know, we're talking about syndication from the 80s versus syndication now, so some of those things may have have changed. Plus... Um, I remember that, was it David Duchovny who had a dispute with Fox or um, or at least the production company for this, for some royalties for the syndication rights to the X-Files, which is something I don't think that stars of shows really paid much attention to back in the early part of the syndication, uh, syndication thing. So that's also another one, uh, another thing to consider and... and, and as far as how expensive some of the shows might have been to put on syndication here and there. He also mentioned that he was loving it. Uh, big flashbacks to his own childhood with WNYW, WWOR, and WPIX. Because Luke is from the New York area. I believe he grew up in Westchester. Uh, but he is a fellow Mets fan. So so he's, he's one of the good New Yorkers. Jumping ahead to episode 6, which was drama, action, sci-fi, adventure, horror, all those things. Um, I'm sure we left out a couple of shows... And um, uh, there were there were um, mini series I think we missed other things like that, but it really is tough to just remember every single thing that was on the air, obviously. But we I do have an email from Professor Allen, 
once again, and he writes in and he says, another great episode of it came from syndication and not just because podcasting's Michael Bailey joined you to talk about the action adventures, sci-fi stuff. Yeah, and Mike commented uh, as he was listening to the episode on Facebook that he didn't realize he interrupted me so much, and I probably didn't even notice while we were recording. Um, I did listen to the episode, and I, I'm like, I guess, but um, it was funny because I really wanted him on the show because... Again, he was somebody who is very close in age to me. We have a kind of a a lot in common with our entertainment, and um, one of the, he's one of those guys that if we had been in high school together, we would have run in the same crowd and probably been friends, and we would have, you know, um, done the same sort of of stuff and watched the same sort of stuff. So that's why I, I chose him and I wanted to I wanted to talk to him about it. So and he was pulling things that he remembered that I didn't remember and he remembered watching some of the shows that I didn't even see any of or much of. So that's why I really liked having him on. Alan says seeing as my age starts with a five, a lot of those shows were not ones that I watched a ton with the exception of Next Gen, which is the first show that my brand new wife and I watched together. I wanted to talk about a show that came on syndi- as syndication was dying, a sad case of what could have been. I'm a huge fan of the fantasy book series The Sword of Truth, written by Terry Good- Goodkind. Goodkind or Goodkind? When it was announced in 2006 that it was being turned into a television show, I was ecstatic. Although changing the name to this of the series to Legend of the Seeker did worry me a bit. Anyway, Goodkind had beaten his contemporaries George R. R. Martin and Terry Brooks to the lucrative world of syndicated TV. When Sam Raimi was signed to direct the pilot in Australia, I figured this was going to turn into the next Hercules or Xena. This is an intricate epic story with characters and events and settings that would make great TV for many years. Unfortunately, by beating Martin and Brooks and others to the world of TV, Goodkind had the bad luck to get a syndicated show in the final days of syndication. Low budgets, very few stations. It ended up with two decent but ultimately forgettable seasons running from 2008 to 2010. What hurts me as a fan of the books is that there was so much missed potential given how good the books are. If Martin had been lucky enough to get his TV deal first, with Goodkin landing a few years later, the history of TV might be quite different. And my favorite book series may well have been a cult- become a cultural giant if it had been grabbed by HBO or Netflix or Amazon or even sci-fi. Anything but syndication would have been better in retrospect. But the way it turned out, very few folks have ever heard of either the books or the TV show. Thanks for letting me get this off my chest. Take care and keep up the good work, Professor Allen. The name Legend of the Seeker sounds familiar. I never watched it. I am not, I've not read any of his books, but I do have heard of the author. Um, Going back, and I think my father-in-law might have read a number of his books. Um, going back and going through some of these fantasy, like um, maybe him and uh, others, is, is something that's been in the back of my mind lately. Um, I have only read the first three of George R. R. Martin's um, books in that series. I am really reluctant to pick up the fourth because as much as I enjoyed the first one, the second one dragged on me, and then the third one... I liked parts and others I think I barely remember. So, you know, I've, I've tackled other things 
you know, like Cervantes, you know, so, which, which is, you know, just as much as even more complicated as George R. R. Martin. So, you know, take it as you will. Finally, I have a Facebook comment from Andy Leyland. He says, this was yet another amazingly fun deep dive into the kind of trash TV that would air in my neck of the woods at 4 a.m. or so on a Saturday afternoon. There is some amazing stuff in here with Renegade and TNT, both being shows I'd forgotten existed. I watched My Secret Identity, which was a fun, if cheap, schedule filler for ITV. War of the Worlds did an episode about the 50th anniversary of the Orson Welles broadcast, which in the show was a real invasion that they passed off as fake so as not to scare the populace. The second season was awful. I almost didn't watch Highlander when I saw Adrian Paul was in the show because of how shit he was in War of the Worlds. Then you top yourself in the deep dive by mentioning Time Tracks. I thought I was the only person who watched that. A Harv Bennett production, Time Tracks, was Bennett's return to TV after his Star Trek Academy film was rejected by Paramount. This has been a great run of episodes, Tom. Well done. Thank you, Andy. Andy uh, does intermittently now, but he has the entire archives of Hey Kids Comics is available over on the TTF feeds. He also does the Palace of Glittering Delights, which is a kind of the... uh, the British sister show to uh, Pop Culture Affidavit. And he is part of the Listen to the Prophets gang for, for the Star Trek Deep Space Nine. Yeah, Time Tracks, I remember Time Tracks really, really well because I read comics from the late 80s and early 90s. And those, like I said in the episode, those $1.75 Teen Titans comics or New Titans comics had their fair share of Time Tracks ads on the on the back cover or the inside back cover. One thing I noticed when I was going through that episode and and grabbing clips and then putting them in and then listening back to it later on was how many of those shows have those let's tell you the entire premise of the show voiceovers in the in the theme song um to it you know the Highlander thing time tracks renegade and some of them they're like most of them are like absolutely awesome uh, My Secret Identity is your typical sitcom theme from that era where it's kind of like giving you the premise of the show in a poppy sort of way, taking almost taking an extra step further from the Sherwood Schwartz uh, f- formula of television themes. Sherwood Schwartz, who created Gilligan's Island the Brady Bunch, his philosophy on television themes was that you should know the premise of the show by listening to television to the theme and if you listen to the themes to Gilligan's Island and the Brady Bunch you get everything you need to know about that show in the 30 seconds or so and it's memorable like you know most of the words to Gilligan's Island and the Brady Bunch even if you haven't seen a lot of episodes you know what the show is about when you get to these shows it is that voiceover and then the theme song now if you watch the CW superhero shows you see those voiceovers on every episode of, like, The Flash and Supergirl. And it's totally like, this is where it comes from. You know, this is, this is I think this is where they're pulling from, these shows that we used to watch um, off-network. And um, I love The Renegade One. And I love The Renegade One because it's done by Don LaFontaine. Um, it, that's just totally, like, his voice, where he was like, you know, he was a good cop. And he testified against other cops and now they want him like and, and again with the and then the other one about time tracks and 
Adrian Paul doing the Highlander thing, very similar to the Connery one. Um, just all over. I loved every one of even if the even if the ones were cheesy, like that Johnny Bago Jimmy Buffett, and I don't like Jimmy Buffett at all anyway, but that Johnny Bago theme was totally cheesy and it told you like the whole story inside those that minute and some of these were like a minute and a half long that thunder in paradise theme song was a long theme song but even then i'm sitting there in my car like yeah yeah this is a good theme song and i really really enjoyed putting that episode together especially listening to all these um all these things in fact i want like i want like more like tv shows and movies to just do that like half budget, low budget movies of like you know, or TV shows of like, just just this thing. I, I kind of miss these these sorts of things. I, I need to seek more of them out, or at least go back and watch the old episodes or some of the old movies that could have been these shows. But anyway, that does it for feedback. Um, if you're still interested in sending me some feedback, like I said at the beginning of this section, you can email me at popcultureaffidavit at gmail.com, and I will throw it into the feedback section on a future episode of the main show. I wanted to take a moment to close it out. Um, this has been seven episodes about syndication that I had a lot of fun doing, and I wanted to offer some final thoughts in this episode, this last episode, which I, in which I covered Baywatch. So last episode in, in about drama, I was talking to Michael Bailey, and we ended up talking a little bit about how original syndication programming, especially in the nerd-friendly genres of science fiction, horror, and fantasy, were kind of pioneers in a way. And as we headed into the 2000s and beyond, more shows began to pop up on basic cable that were of better quality and were ultimately critically acclaimed and successful. I will, of course, give credit where credit is due to HBO for paving the way 20 years ago with Sex and the City and The Sopranos and other shows that were on at the time. But I think that if you go back 30 years ago to Star Trek The Next Generation, and then you look at shows like... Highlander, Xena, and yes, even Baywatch. You see the genesis of the idea that you could have a successful television series without having to rely on CBS, NBC, ABC, or Fox, and risk having your show canceled only after a few episodes. Networks have been struggling for years, at least where original scripted programming is concerned. Cable shows don't pull in the numbers that The Big Bang Theory or NCIS do. But they are allowed to attract niche audiences, and they have smaller episode orders very often, which can really work to their advantage. I'm making a generalization on here, but at some level, I think this goes back to those syndicated shows that were allowed to build audiences, partly because the station running them was just looking to fill programming, and that's why they picked it up. Of course, nowadays, syndication is, well, at best a dinosaur, at worst, dead. And uh, there are myriad reasons for that. First, you have cable and streaming. You know, kids aren't throwing on WPIX's after-school cartoon sitcom block anymore because Cartoon Network, Nick, Disney XD, Netflix, they all made this unnecessary. And with that comes the second reason. The audience is probably older than it used to be. I looked at the syndicated offerings for my area. Uh, They're judge shows, talk shows, some sitcoms. Definitely stuff that was more older 
than what I may have watched on those same channels when I was a kid. Third, I think that these types of shows, along with infomercials, are another factor because they're not incredibly expensive to produce and air. Spending money on the syndication package for The Big Bang Theory, putting together something as familiar as Dr. Phil or The View, it's less of an expensive gamble because it's all like familiar looking than a drama with original scripts and special effects, especially in our current world of Netflix and Hulu and Amazon. So syndication has essentially been replaced, which is okay, because right now I know there is some bored kid sitting in front of their television, scrolling through Netflix or flipping through the deep cable channels, and they're going to find that show, the one that in 15, 20 years they're going to find on YouTube or whatever replaces YouTube and say, hey, that was mine. You know, even if the show has a few million fans and even if they connect with those few million fans. It'll be something they feel is special in a way, or special to them. And if they have a healthy relationship with pop culture and fandom, they won't act like a gatekeeper. And they'll welcome anyone who wants to talk about it, because honestly, finding new people to share even the most random stuff like that will make it even more special. I had a really fun time putting this series together. The research was fun, the conversations were awesome, and I, I want to thank you for listening. I honestly hope that you enjoyed me working through the memories of having nothing better to do on a weekend afternoon or evening, and I hope it prompted you to check out some of the shows that we talked about, no matter how good or bad they were. And that will do it, for it came from syndication. If you have any leftover feedback for me, feel free to send it my way. I will put it onto an episode of Pop Culture Affidavit in the future, probably next month's. And if you do want to hear me talk about more pop culture randomness, including television, go on to the website, popcultureaffidavit.com, and listen to the main Pop Culture Affidavit podcast, which comes out just about every month. That's where I'll see you. And one last time, thank you very much for listening, and take care. concludes our programming for today. We welcome any comments you may have regarding our programming. It Came From Syndication is located at popcultureaffidavit.com with our email at popcultureaffidavit at gmail.com and Twitter at popaff. Pop Culture Affidavit is a member of the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network. Some of today's programming has been mechanically reproduced. It Came From Syndication wishes you a pleasant good night and good morning.